Presenting Danforth Dialogues, a monthly podcast on leadership hosted by Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. This month, we are very honored to have Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens as our guest. Mayor Dickens is the 61st Atlanta Mayor, having served as an Atlanta City Council member at large for eight years prior to taking office last year. Mayor Dickens has quickly set the city on a new, vibrant course, addressing and mitigating a rising crime rate, leading the efforts to stop a de-annexation effort, instituting a number of initiatives to support youth, and even re-establishing the city's fame pothole posse to quickly repair Atlanta streets. Mayor Dickens is an Atlanta native a graduate of Mays High School, and earned a chemical engineering degree from Georgia Tech and a Master of Public Administration degree from Georgia State University. Dr. Montgomery Rice and Mayor Dickens will talk about his vision for Atlanta and his approach to leadership. Now for this month's episode, here is Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Welcome to Danforth Dialogues. As you know, each month we bring you leadership insights from a wide range of guests. And I am so excited to be joined today by the Honorable Andre Dickens, Mayor of Atlanta. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I know your schedule is busy and we wanna welcome you to Danforth Dialogues. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. It's always good to be in your presence, to be around you, to be on this beautiful campus in the AUC and uh, to really just have good conversations with good people. So I know you're good people. So right, good people, good people. So, <laughs> so let's talk about it. We usually start with our guests talking about their journey. And you're a native Atlantan, Mays High School, proud to say you're a fellow alum of Georgia Tech. Uh, and though I got my degree probably a little bit earlier than you, uh, you've been a business owner. You've spent a great deal of time in the tech industry. Tell us a little bit about your, about your background and what inspired you to go into public service. But I also want you to tell me what was going through that little boy's mind who was on the playground, probably playing basketball, uh, with a basketball hoop with some of the chains were probably missing. You know how that <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how did that person ever think that they would be able to rise above and become the mayor of one of the most outstanding cities in the country? Yeah, I think back to that little boy quite often um, and remembering him and where I've become, where I've uh, achieved to, makes me want to have more moments like that for thousands of young people in Atlanta. So growing up here, I'm a you know multi-generational Atlantan. My, I went to Atlanta public schools. So did my sister. My mother went to Atlanta public schools. My grandparents went to Atlanta public, public schools. School. Right, right. And my daughter attended Atlanta public schools for many of her years. And so uh, we are Atlanta folks. And so growing up, I thought Atlanta was the best place in the well, world. Well, you had really never been anywhere and else. I had been anywhere okay, else. I just want to make sure. You know, we, 
I hadn't been anywhere else other than I went to um, Jekyll Island for a beta club thing. And then I, we went to uh, NASA in um, Huntsville, Alabama uh -huh, yeah, for yeah. a field trip we to go see the there. space, yeah. uh, you know, all that, the space rockets and the museums and the launch and things. I hadn't been anywhere else. But what I saw on TV and all these cities I travel to now, and I love them when I'm there, but I saw them on New York, Chicago, L.A., this place, that place. I was like, yeah. Atlanta's better. We got Martin Luther King all throughout this. We have, I went to Benjamin Elijah Mays High School. So I knew the impression that these great Atlantans had made on the world. You know, my rival school was Frederick Douglass. And you could see the names of these streets being named after influential uh, people of consequence to the world. And I thought, you know, I'm being you know, nurtured and raised in this cradle of civil rights. And I saw the city before the skyline looks like it does today. I was like, wow, we're a big city, you know, but <laughs> there was much bigger cities out there. But then Atlanta being the little engine that could now look at us. And so at 16 years old, I said, I want to be the mayor of Atlanta at 16. Um, I knew that one day I wanted to sit in this office and I wanted to impact the world. I could start seeing the difference that my life would be based on my, uh, I was going to be going to college and I had, you know, aptitude and I had success in sports and I had, you know, people looking out for me. And I was like, this is what life looks like when you have a supportive village and you got access. But I knew the neighborhood I lived in, you know, those folks still were struggling. And so I was saying, if I could do better, then hopefully everybody else, we could, we could make a way. And I just wanted Atlanta to thrive and be a big international city. So I you know, always had a big, like, goals for this city, even though I was a young person with limited, you know, knowledge of what other cities were doing. But I knew I wanted Atlanta to be there. And I said, I want to be mayor. So when I got to tech, I would introduce myself. I'm Andre Dickens from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a chemical engineering major. And I want to be mayor of Atlanta one day. And people were like, why are you here? And who wants to be mayor at 16? And that was me. And here I how, am. How did you find Georgia Tech? How did you how did you find that to be as an institution? Now, I got some stories I could tell you, but <laughs> how did you find that? So t Tech was a very rigorous school then, and it's rigorous now, but it was crazy back then. It was just trying to weed people out. And I got blessed that... Uh, we had a quiz bowl, this academic quiz bowl, this school versus all these other schools. We were competing, and the finals was at Georgia Tech. And our little, my, you know, black school, Mays High School, was competing against kids all across the metro Atlanta and, and, and beyond. And we came in like second or third or something like that. But the minority recruiter at Georgia Tech said, like y'all, all of y'all can come to this summer program. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a seven day program. Of might? Six, it was might. Yeah. Minorities interested in technology I, and engineering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was a six or seven day program. I got in that thing and I, I had never been on a college campus other than that quiz bowl. And this Georgia Tech could have been in Athens for all I knew. I didn't know what a where it was, because no, I was the first in my family to go to college. So when when that man said, come to Tech for a week, I showed the paperwork to my mom, she signed it, and off I went to college for six days and you know five nights or whatever it was. And so we went to class for like 
four or five hours, and then we played basketball in space for the rest of the afternoon. Uh, look, look, look. And, uh, now, <laughs> at Georgia Tech, you had to be able to play cards. You had to but be able we, to play cards. Back then, we played bid whist. Oh, okay, okay so okay. we didn't play spades. We I played bid whist. I learned bid whist in, in life's graduate school. Oh, okay. Uh, that's, that's, you know, cookouts. But, um, you know, so that, then, then I went to Tech, and it was tough. But the thing that made Tech palatable, because it wasn't that big of a minority population, was the AUC. So I had friends of mine that were from Mays and Douglas that was at Morehouse, Spelman, Clark, Morris Brown. So hanging out with them on the weekends or throughout, you know, various, you know, events and stuff, I could get over here and I could see them. They could come over to Tech rarely, but they did and come saw, saw me. But it just, and it's close, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, oh, it's, it's, it's very close. I, you know, you think about your story that you're telling is not much different and then when I was there a little bit earlier than you, yeah. just just a little bit, the Mike program, Georgia Tech, I always tell people was the hardest thing that I've ever done, harder than medical school, harder than everything. But it gave you a foundation. It challenged you. Uh, it created uh, great habits. Uh, you So you're talking about, and what I'm hearing is community. Yeah. And this community that is built gave you a foundation. It started out with, I love the term people of consequence, mm -hmm. yeah, right? I, right? I love that because to me, that makes me think about responsibility also. So you've been in office now for a year and a half, right? Right. Yeah. And uh, we noted in, in the introduction, I've seen you. you, you are kissing a lot of babies. You're doing a lot of different things. Talk to us about your vision for Atlanta beyond just some of the superficial things that we see, but yeah. are important because it connects you with the community. Right. They need to feel your presence. Right. But they also need to understand the things of substance that you're going to do to make a difference, to take this city to the future. Yeah, absolutely. I've been mayor for uh, 19 months now. And, and you, know, you just kind of keep that going. You count him up. Uh, you don't count down. You count up. Uh, 18, 19 months now. And I love the job every single day. The, 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 the crazy calls, the difficult decisions. Um, it's probably like being the president of a major uh, <laughs> medical school. You never know what the morning will bring. You never know. You wake up and you got your plans of what you want to achieve today. And then, you know, critical decision number one and crisis number two, then decision point number three. By the time you end up the day, you've gotten your list done, plus all the things that come in and you still have more room to go. Well, that's me. It's the number one things where the taking care of the basics of government. Government is just a weird thing because, you know, we all are a part of the community. So it's not like when I worked in a factory as a chemical engineer where that company, we had our code of standards and we had a product we had to get out and we had to get it out at a certain time, at a certain rate for a certain value cost. That was what I was judged on. Judged on my ability to optimize a system that was already created. An individual contributor. Yeah, I was an individual contributor to, to maximize the profitability of an organization. And that was my role. Somebody else was dealing with intergovernmental affairs for that community because we are a chemical plant. Somebody else is you know, dealing with the trucking and the delivery and the routes and all that stuff. I Me, mean, I had my portion. Now, as mayor, all things that say Atlanta on it. Even if you're wearing a T-shirt that say Atlanta in it, and that got a business license in the city to print that T-shirt, I got something to do with it. This thing is big. It's a huge role where 
people say your name 20, 30, 40 times before you even wake up. I've been on the news this morning. I'm in the news at noon. I'm in the news at night. I'm tweeted and talked about. And so you can you know, get caught up in the chatter or you can keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing for me is making sure that we have this great growth but balanced growth. Uh, you can let this place be run by, you know, uh, folks that are looking to invest for profits. Um, but you're also going to have a, a, a doomsday that come if you don't look out for those people that are vulnerable in these communities. So balancing the growth. If you're coming here, technology company, we need you to make sure you hire locally and train locally. If you're coming here to take advantage of some of the opportunities that we have, we want you to invest in the ecosystem. You need to, you know, CEOs and your directors have to join boards, be a part of the decision making and give in to this group project that we call Atlanta. So my vision for this city is one that's rooted in how I was raised. I was raised by a group, a, a, a village, you know, the coach. Uh, for any sports team, the, you know, uh, school, the, the teachers, the principals, those individuals, the church, you know, the, 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 the pastor, but the deacons and, the, you know, the, the, the Sunday school teachers and all those things. So this is where I get this lens that we're a group project. And when everybody is fully participating in the city, uh, there's no people that's just on the sidelines like y'all figure that out. You know, that, that that's a city gone wrong. If it's just, you know, call the mayor and the government going to fix everything, that, that's unsustainable. No, we can solve these problems. You want to see youth be able to have a bright future? Yeah, you know, we got Parks and Recs Department. We got a few jobs in the city. But what we really need is everybody pitching in. And so that's why academia comes in. Um, and I stay very close to you and stay very close to, you know, higher ed and K-12. So uh, my big vision is to make sure that Atlanta is the best place in the country to raise a child. So if it's the best place to raise a child and all other indicators probably are um, you know, dependent variables into that. And so that would be, you know, that they're safe. That's why we're trying to make sure that everybody's safe and they're well-educated, that they have uh, meaningful, almost countless cultural experiences in the city, great parks, great art, you know, so, you know, that all those things lead to making sure that you, if you're going to have a, a city that's the best place to raise a child and all the things that we do for grown folks, we really we are doing it that benefits the, the family and the children. And so you've talked about this being the year of the youth. Yeah. At your state of the city address, and you started, uh, I don't know if you started it or it had already started, but you continued this midnight basketball. Oh, yeah. Tell me what that practically looks like for real. <laughs> Are you playing basketball at night? And is it what? How do you get picked on a team and yeah. like selecting you? So I learned about midnight basketball from Chicago back when I was a city council member. So Chicago has had midnight basketball from like 2014 when their crime was high and, and they wanted solutions to keep the young men uh, out of trouble. And my, who's now my deputy chief of staff, Theo Pace, who is a Morehouse alum from Chicago, he went to Morehouse and he worked for city, city hall, city council. And I, he gave me this idea. He was like, then I was council member. Council member, you love the youth and you got all this going on. Here's an idea that we had in Chicago. I read about it, he showed it to me, and we 
put it together with the Parks and Rec Department and some other sponsors to say, we can have these folks play basketball. So you play from 7 p.m. to midnight. So it's called Midnight Basketball. Okay, okay. But we ain't out there They made me feel better. I, I know, y'all. Yeah, yeah y'all health professionals. Y'all want everybody to get some sleep, <laughs> some right. good rest, uh, some exercise and activity, but y'all want people to have rest. I know, I read y'all literature. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, from 7 to 12, they play basketball. Um, and it is fun because it's competitive, but it's cooperation. It's kind of like you're working together for a cause. You're competing on the court, on the, uh, on the court, but you're, you know, after that, you know, we got free food for you over here. There's barbers giving free haircuts. Uh, there's also people that's talking about job training. It's community. So, it's yeah, community. the Urban League is there saying you want a GED uh, or you, you know, CDL licenses are here. We got, you know, Walmart. Uh, APS is saying you want to be a school bus driver with short on bus drivers. So they're at the games saying, come on. So game one, you might have just wanted to play, eat, and go. Game two, you might say, well, let me get a haircut. You know, by week three, you're there. You're like, I need to get a job. Or I want a better job. Or I want a better skill. So you keep these things going until, you know, it stops just being you know, activity to keep you out of trouble. It becomes a way to help you thrive. So we've seen some people progress that way where you come in, they play, and then now they're evolving into they might have got a, a, a new skill and then on to a great career. And so what I what I love about that is that you're meeting people where they are. Yeah. You are bringing them to opportunities that they didn't even know existed or right. that they even desired. And so I definitely applaud you on that. So if we stick to this uh, sports thing, in 2026, we'll be one of the cities hosting the World Cup. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, this is like one of the biggest global sports events since the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And so now I kind of remember when Ambassador Young was, you know, bringing the Olympics <laughs> to Georgia. And uh, woo. Uh, so how is the city preparing for this? And what do you want the world to see and experience about Atlanta during that time? Yeah, this is going to be huge. And, you know, until you know about how world football, we call it soccer here in America. Right, right, but world football. Uh, but it's, it's football. It's right, where right. They actually, it's more of a football than that thing that we throw that, you know, that, right. that, that, that we run and throw and try to, you know, but it's um, it's a big game and it's an international game. It's, a, it's, it's billions of people will be watching this event for several weeks and traveling to go to various cities for games and matches. And so what I want for the city of Atlanta is for, yes, I want Atlanta to be on display. I want people to see us with the bright lights. I want them to see our arenas and see our, you know, activities and stuff and our cultural stuff and our civil rights and everything else. I want them to see our institutions of higher learning. But I don't want it to just happen to Atlanta. I want, to, I want it to happen with Atlanta. So, uh, you know, mothers and grandmothers and aunties and uncles that live in the West End, you know, what are they going to get out of a World Cup? I mean, are you going to pay $1,000 for a ticket to be in the nose? These, this is like the Super Bowl every night. Every right? night. Yeah, yeah it, right. it, is, it is huge. It is like the Olympics, but even bigger than the Olympics. It's crazy. Um, so what's going to happen when it comes to Atlanta and I don't want everybody being like, I can't move because there's so much traffic. I can't, you know, I can't get around. I can't get to the stuff I want to, oh, you know, they just here and they, no, I want, as we lead up to it, 
for them to have activations in their communities. So we're working with soccer in the streets. Uh, soccer in the streets goes out to the neighborhoods. We're going to be placing uh, activations in various communities around Atlanta where young kids can come out and we'll, you know, do a, a fake Nigeria versus Japan match and get people ready for that. Put up a big screen, show some matches, have some food trucks, have some, again, uh, you know, whether that's health screenings while you're out there. That's right. We'll have be some happy job, to participate. Yeah, job opportunities while you're out there. Of course, have food, bands, games musicians or what have you, arts. So we're planning those kind of things so that we don't just have, you know, you know, three months after the World Cup leaves, everybody in Atlanta is like, I'm glad they gone because they were, you know, I don't know nothing about it other than they just played games in our city. That's not how we want to do major events. We want to be inclusive. We want our community to benefit from it. So we're coming up with vendor plans. So, you know, local vendors can be in every aspect of it, whether that's transportation vendors, security vendors, of course, culinary food vendors, et cetera. Um, and then fun. So I want the world to see Atlanta as this great international city that's inclusive. Uh, you'll come in through the world's busiest airport, but you'll also be able to experience a city that's got a big heart. And we, 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 we have some big soccer fans. Uh, the Atlanta United breaks all the, the, the attendance records a night in the, in the, in the, uh, at the big stadium downtown at uh, Mercedes-Benz. Uh, we're hosting four international teams for a huge game as a pre, you know, kind of oh, precursor. Oh, that's going to be, gonna gonna be nice. big. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I can definitely tell you the energy around soccer is increasing. So I'm glad to see yeah. that you're going to spread it throughout the community and they will get to uh, begin to understand why the rest of the world right. sees it uh, beyond just soccer and it's really football. Right. Right. It's quote unquote. Right. <laughs> so uh, those were the easy questions. So let's get to some others. Morehouse School of Medicine, the community at large, many of us were really surprised when the two Atlanta hospital closed. The Atlanta Medical Center, particularly the, the last one uh, in the Midtown area. Because you and I both know the disparities that surrounded those communities and how many people in those communities were dependent upon those hospitals. So, I want to hear your perspective on how do you believe we should go about addressing and finding solutions to restore healthcare services that were lost when the Wellstar when Wellstar made the decision to close the hospitals, and how do we avoid this ever happening again? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a place where frank conversation has to be have to hold people accountable and also to, to move forward. And the truth of the matter is I was extremely disappointed in Wellstar as an organization, as people um, that live in these communities, any community around, around Metro Atlanta, you got to know the disparities. So when you allow, when you close a, a uh, hospital, you, you know what you're doing. You just impacted an already challenged network. So you did so knowingly. This isn't like, oops, I didn't have any idea that you were sitting here 
with half a community that did not have a hospital. And now I just took one. It's not a oops. It's just intentional. You knew this. And so we've shared that 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 disappointment with Wellstar, with their board, with their leadership, and we've shared it with the public because the public needs to know that an organization that knew better did did the thing to a community. And they did it for financial reasons. Essentially, they said it was not um, making money. It did not, you know, they were losing money, so to speak. And we've done some, you know, looking into it. We we don't think they've lost as much as they said they lost. Uh, they carried some costs into some places that, well, you know, that, that, that wasn't a direct effect of AMC. But nonetheless, there was always a path out of that, though. Reinvestment, adding in other partners, support, um, you know, asking the county, the city, the state for some help. Um, none of that happened. They went to the nuclear option of closing. And they closed with a 60-day notice. I know, 60 days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 60 days is a short time to close anything, let alone a critical piece of infrastructure for any state, city, or anywhere. So it hurt us. And um, we would never want anybody to do that again. So there is safeguards that have to be in place. But first, I mean... You know, shame is a tool. Reminder to anybody that you do this, look at how, you know, so we've had, you know, make make sure that Wellstar continues to be on front page news about our disappointment, even as we're trying to mend and, and reestablish ourselves as somewhat near, you know, uh, capable of communicating a, a pathway towards the future. So now the hope is that that campus still maintains um, as a place where we can have some medical facility doesn't have to be a 300, 400-bed hospital. No, it could be something that fits the community. And I think the medical professionals can tell us what best. I think it probably needs some primary care physicians. It needs some community outreach folks for sure. And it also needs some hospital bed, some sort of, you know, place where emergency and trauma, uh, you know, people impacted by trauma. And it may have some other thing, uh, you know, a NICU and some other stuff. I don't know. You know, you guys can know better than that. But we've been doing, been working with consultants and bringing, you know, uh, medical professionals, including yourself together to kind of see what the future is. But I placed a moratorium on the property so that Wellstar can't sell it to a developer to make something that's not in the best interest of the community. You know, so they can't sell it and get any permits. They can't sell it and get any kind of demolition permit or construction permit. So they can't move. Um, if they sell it to somebody, that person's stuck too. Um, so that's our way of saying we need to come back together with an attractive pack package to attract a medical provider. So that looks like um, someone that can keep us, would love for it to be a, uh, a level one trauma center, one that has research, academia, as well as hospital, uh, you know, provisions for emergency and other things. And so we are still saying, let's do that. And I've had to re-up my moratorium. Moratoriums only last six months. So I've had to do it again and I'm going to do it until then. Um, but also we still have to look beyond because even with that facility, it's still north of I-20. We don't have any hospitals south of I-20. And south of I-20 is where we have higher cases of diabetes, higher cases of all sorts of, you know, the, the negative social impacts on health. So those folks in Deep Cascade and Hamilton Road and Thomasville, those folks are driving in traffic to get to Grady. And God bless, you know, the things that's happened at Grady, Emory, and Piedmont. But... We need a hospital on the south side. 
or the west side. And so we're talking to folks to see if we can get, you know, some investment in that. And, um, I, you know, I'll just say, frankly, I would love to have a school, a, 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 a hospital named after Morehouse School of Medicine. We, we would, too, one day. So we, we, we you, you never know. Yeah, so it's, it's, would it's, love it's to a, have a hospital named it's, after it's Morehouse vision, School of Medicine. Um, and an opportunity. And I, and I say that in all seriousness, Mayor, and you and I have spoken on this on, on different occasions. We want to um, meet the needs of the community. And we are very, very proud of the partnership that we were able to start with Fulton County, with Fulton County Commissioners, because uh, as we know, it is the county that has the responsibility of providing health care to the residents. And, and they've been great partners with us as we start to build out this ambulatory strategy. So uh, I think uh, the, our listeners should stay tuned for what we would be doing with the county and doing with the city and understanding that all the decisions that we um, make will be informed by the needs of the community. And we, like you, will be going out there co-creating solutions because we also recognize that it's more than just having a healthcare facility. Yeah. Right. It is it is about dealing with a lot of the social determinants uh, of health. And so if I if I ask that one question of you, when you think beyond the facility and access, are there other things like transportation and jobs and those type of things that you are working on that, you know, are going to have an impact on health outcomes? Yeah, so a couple of things. So one, going back to one thing on the last question and discussion we were having, I want your listeners to do more than stay tuned. I want them to stay vigilant, to stay communicating loudly that they still would love uh, a hospital, a medical facility, and they, they would want one that has partnership with Morehouse School of Medicine. I want them to say those words because Fulton County is, you know, these are Fulton County voters. They're city of Atlanta voters, so they need to speak to the elected officials at Fulton County. Now, the county is responsible for health and human services. That's on their charter. It's, it's the, that's on the sign outside. It's right, right, health right. and human services. That's what they're supposed to provide. The city of Atlanta, I'm interested in it because I want a healthy public. As a part of my vision statement, I want one city with one bright future, a city of safe, healthy, connected neighborhoods. My vision wants them to be healthy with my support, but we have to make sure that the state, the county is doing so. So I want our listeners to be vigilant and communicate it and don't get weary because we're at month eight or nine from that fatal moment that Wellstar left us. Don't get weary and start thinking, well, we kind of hanging on. The world hasn't ended because we didn't have another hospital. No, we got a lot of we stuff happening. We, 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 yeah, we, we can do better. We can do a lot better. We must do better. And we are going to do better. We got to do better. Secondly, to that point, is what when you're in a city like Atlanta with all of our history that we've communicated about of civil rights, of community, of culture, we you know, there's other cities that have hospitals with HBCU names to it. You know, only a few, but if anybody's gonna have one, it's gotta be this one. The city of Atlanta is, is special and it's unique. And so if you have the highest concentration of HBCUs, but yet you're, you know, you don't have them tied into your critical infrastructure, then it's a wasted. It's not not, not fully wasted, but it's definitely a missed moment. There's and so this is there's some opportunity there. And so that's why I'm invested we, in this. We hear you, Mayor, and yeah. I and I think our public hears you. And <laughs> and believe me, we are we are working uh toward creating solutions that are sustainable mm -hmm. 
and that are going to meet the needs. Yeah. And and I think down the road it is going to look like a hospital, and there's a lot of other things that we have to build in the interim so that we can create all of the connectivity such that when we build a hospital, it's the hospital that the community needs. Yes. And we're not in a situation where we're trying to fill beds, but we're trying beds that need to be filled with people who are in need. Right. Absolutely. And so going to your other question about, you know, what else is needed from a transportation perspective and, you know, education and community outreach. And that's the other important thing. There is the physical infrastructure that's needed for some of these things. But we have to make sure that we have, um, you know, investment in the ambulatory services, but also, um, you know, the w pathways for people to get trained in these various skills. So that's why, you know, having, you know, Morehouse School of Medicine, but also, you know, the, the undergraduate, the, the preparation for it, the internships this year, I've called it the year of the youth. Um, we've declared it the year of the youth that everything that we do has to empower, engage, educate, and even employ our young people. So letting them earn while they learn. So training is vital uh, for us to have a society that uh, thrives. So making sure people have, you know, you know whether they're certification programs or full-fledged degree programs, um, you know, there's, there's, there's ladders and lattices that we need to, you know, have people be able to climb in terms of education and growth. Um, also, you know, the city, you know, we're investing in our moving moving Atlanta forward infrastructure bond where you got to start seeing roads being paved. You see some, you start seeing sidewalks going in um, and sidewalks are critical for our individuals that are in wheelchairs or pedestrians walking. They may not have a car and that's in a number of communities. So um, being able to make investments. Again, in going into the community and listening and understanding what they need. That's right. So speaking of, of which, that's second hard question. And, and I really want to give you the opportunity because I, it has been very difficult for me to understand why our community would not believe that a better trained police force is a better asset to the community and what our people deserve. And when I've had one-on-one -on -one conversations with people about, quote unquote, cop city, everyone in uniform that I've talked to has told me that's what this is about. When I've talked to legislators, they've said to me, that's what this is about. What is it that the, the public is hearing that's different? And how do we change that rhetoric so, so they really understand our, 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 that this is about them yeah. and what we should be doing on the, the city's behalf, yeah. or the citizens' behalf, to make sure that the people in uniform that they come into contact with are able to meet them in the most appropriate way to address the issue at hand. Right, right. Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to ask this, answer this question. It's, um, you know, the, the public safety training center that we're building is to provide safety for the for the public, the, the the people that live here, the people that are coming here to be educated, the individuals that are coming here to visit on the weekends for a, a sporting event or just a family reunion, and the businesses that are here that people come to every day for work. Folks come to Atlanta, you know, every single day we triple in population with people that are coming from the surrounding suburb. So you want a well-trained police and a well-trained fire and a well-trained EMT uh, in our city. And so all of that, we're doing that in one location, co-locating it because uh, 
we see lots of times where an incident occurs. We got fire trucks there. We have police officers there and we have EMTs there. Uh, we had a mass shooting recently. Uh, the police officers are in there looking for the suspect and the fire firefighters are right behind them because they're rescue workers. They're right behind them looking for more victims. Same time, one of them have a vest on, one of them don't. One of them's carrying a gun and a badge. The other's carrying a bag for medical preparation or medical support. This is real life emergency situations that we dealt we've dealt with and we deal with all the time. Barricaded gunmen, these kind of you know domestic violence stuff that's happening right now. Since the pandemic, people have had an inability to resolve conflicts the way that we should. So people are resorting to violence. And so how do you um, solve for solve for that without more training and more resources? And so. Uh, in 2020, when the unfortunate situation with George Floyd happened, everyone said, we need more police training. We need police to be trained on how to de-escalate. They need to know anti-bias, to not have biases. These police officers need to train, be trained on how to deal with, you know, sensitivities of various communities, you know, racial differences, LGBTQ biases, et cetera. How do you deal with that? Well, we can't just train in the air. You train in real life scenarios. And so if you're if you haven't had an investment in the city's fire or police um, training facilities in over three decades, uh, the police, the, the, the classrooms that they were operating in, they're all molded, mildew, the showers don't work and they, they you know, rodent infested. It's time, it, and then you want to attract people to that, to go to this profession after all the challenges. And so I asked the public, if we're here at Morehouse School of Medicine, do you want your next physician to be untrained? Do you want them to be trained on Zoom? You want your no. physician trained on you Zoom? Don't want them, you don't want them learning surgery on the Zoom. <laughs> you do not want them learning surgery on Zoom. You do not want them to, um, the first time they see an uh, 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 a circumstance is your time. Right. The, the very first time they see somebody dealing with something medically is it, your time. So the very first time you see somebody have a fire in their home, it's your home. Or the very first time uh, granddaddy is having, you know, that, that somebody granddaddy is having a heart attack, this firefighter, uh, fire rescue worker is showing up. This is the first time they, they're dealing with that. No, that's why you have training. That's why you train over and over and over again for, and so I do think that the city needs, to, we have to take the blame for not messaging early on, early on and the right messaging and doing the layered community um, conversations about what uh, and why we would do something like this. We dropped the ball on that. So um, there's a lesson to be learned about doing big things, um, making sure you don't do big things and have, you know, all it took was a, a small nucleus of people to say, we don't think you ought to invest in police. You ought to invest in something else. And that resonated. Meanwhile, we're, we're investing more than $90 million in affordable housing. We got two, $300 million in affordable housing. This training center is $90 million. Well, you ought to invest this, you ought to. And so that messaging did not, we did not get out of the starting gate as fast as Twitter did. They, they can tweet the hate and the, we doubt and all that kind of stuff way faster than you can catch up and say, look at what we're doing, look at what we're doing. Last thing I'll say is, you know, the public is right 
because I was with the public saying we need a new, uh, we need some reform in policing. So now we just invested in what we call co-responder models. And this is coming out of conversations with healthcare professionals. So a, a co-responder model is uh, there's a guy yelling and shouting, he's mentally crazy outside of the Dunkin' Donuts. What do you do? Well, everybody calls 911. If all you got is a police officer with a gun, a taser, and some handcuffs, you got a limited set of resources for that officer. That officer is going to try to talk him with some training that we're providing. But you leave. You, there's a lot of things happening in the mental challenge space, in the healthcare space. Now we're sending out psychologists, clinicians with those folks. So you say something like that happened. We're not just sending out an officer. We're sending out an officer and uh, someone that can talk to this person. And then we're opening up a, um, a diversion center that's already under construction. It should open first quarter 2024. And that place is where we will take the individual to either get mental health care, to get uh, shower or food or to sober up if they're, you know, mm -hmm. dealing with being intoxicated. And so we're we're investing in both and policing and non-policing things, violence prevention, but also some 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 care uh, that is not uh, dealing with a sworn officer with a badge and a gun. So, so we're so trying to do a that's, lot. That's so refreshing to hear. And all of that takes training. Yeah. And all of that takes practice. And you have to create the scenarios that may not be real life, live at that time, but become real life when the scenarios happen. Amen. So yeah. uh, I, I wanted to give you the opportunity to speak to this. Now, this podcast is about leadership. And one of the things that you said early on, and we could go on and keep, I keep naming a whole bunch of other things for you to talk about. Yeah. Uh, but you said this is a big job. Right. <laughs> and there are a lot many other things that you have to take care of, but about leadership, what do you think it is that prepared you to lead in this space and to be ready to lead at this time? Yeah, I said this uh, some time ago. I had an interview that asked, you know, they were saying, you're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing this. You know, you're doing a good job. What, you know, how are you able to manage these things. And I, you know, and I, and I'm not a, I'm a very humble person. I believe that I'm, I'm blessed by God to even be in this position. And I said, some of the decisions that we have to make that's been made already in my administration and the decisions that are coming at us every day, I'm, I'm looking at like, I don't even know who else I would, how else somebody else would make these decisions except for some of the um, preparedness that I've been given and didn't even know I was being prepared. Um, for instance, I'm a deacon of a church, uh, and I, it's a regular church with, you know, folks that, you know, church ain't nothing, but, you know, people come in, they people, but they still got their stuff with them. They, they still talk about each other. They still, <laughs> now, for, for about 45 minutes while the preacher's talking, everybody is a saint, right? They came in there with stuff. They leave out of there in the parking lot talking about somebody's hat, Right. <laughs> People are peopling all the time. And so as a deacon, you got a lot of grace. You just dare to serve. And so somebody's complaining about, you know, some one thing, somebody's optimistic about another thing, and you just kind of have these conversations and you try to find harmony 
and a way for us to keep on supporting. If somebody's in a crisis, hey, I need help. I need, you know, I'm $100 short on my rent. Can y'all help me? Deacons might go try to find some money at the general fund by calling the finance people, or five of us figure out $20 and help them get that $100, and we don't even report it or nothing. It's just solving problems on the fly. Well, that's leadership. You know, what's big enough for me to take it to the board of directors and finance and go to the voters on or go wherever? And some of it is, we're just about to solve this right now because there is a critical need. It is, how do you manage competing interests? You only got so many resources, you only got so much time, and every day is competing interest. Somebody wants you to come to their daughter's uh, third grade class, got a new pencil sharpener, and they want the mayor to be there to bless it. Right, 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 right. right. Pencil sharpener, right, right. And I, you know, that's probably a bad example because I don't think they use pencils no more. No, but, uh, probably not. <laughs> but, but that's what I get every day. They want you to be at. If I go to this church and they put me on Facebook and say I was at that church, twelve other churches called that week saying, "Why the mayor don't never come to my church?" Then I go to one of them churches. Hey, the mayor don't never come to the north side churches. Then I go to that church. I go to this school. Go to the fifth grade class. I get blasted out because I didn't say nothing to the first graders. I just went where the principal told me to go. So part of it is managing the competing interests. Everybody wants something. Do you do a side? Do you do a stop sign or a traffic light? You know, are you going to invest in a, a, a park or a recreation center on that land? What are you going to do? And you're always trying to go to the you know, community. You try to go to the you know, uh, city council and try to get ideas. And then some things are just like right here, right in so front of you. So what grounds you in your decision? Well, the, the North Star is the, the city that is going to be the best place to raise a child. And so you start making decisions that are, some are critical for right now, and some are critical for the future, so your land path. And so you got to, one, hire a good team. So I came in, and there was an established team based on the previous mayor, who was a friend of mine. And some people had to stay, some people moved on, and some people we repositioned. Um, and then I had to hire about 12 key leaders, commissioners, deputy chiefs, chiefs, uh, directors, and so huge amount of hiring and assessing of talent. You got to be a good assessor of talent. You, they, they have to be good at what they do, and they have to also, you know, match this uh, aggressive administration that I have. We have to supercharge this, this city to get back to where we were coming after COVID and to get beyond it. So my experience as a small business owner, dealing with profit and loss, making critical decisions about, from a business perspective, how to treat customers. You think about it, I ran a furniture business that I started from, from ground zero, from the first $10,000 that I pulled out my savings account to figuring out the name of it, the colors of it, the logo, everything, my business, grew it. Well, I was running for mayor with 14 people. 14 of us ran for mayor. Because I did good business, you imagine that I had thousands and thousands of customers that at any of those 45 forums that we had for that campaign, anybody could have come over there and say, Mayor Dick, uh, Andre Dickens that's running for mayor is a liar. He sold bad furniture. He gave us what no warranty. What kind of furniture were you making? We was a contemporary furniture, similar to like what you have at a Z Gallery or, you know, it was a retail store, three locations across Metro Atlanta from 2002 to 2011. But these folks could be complaining, saying, 
His, he, he lied. He, his delivery was off. These people tore up my house when they delivered the furniture. Or I asked for blue. They sent me green and wouldn't take the green back. Nobody said that because ethics and honesty are 100% who, who I am. And everybody that works for me must be that way because people have to trust what you say. And so part of leadership is I tell my administration from the very beginning, trust and energy are my currencies. You ain't going to outwork me. I got more energy than anybody. I work from can't see morning to can't see night. And trust, if I say it, you can trust it. And I want that to be reciprocated. If you say you're going to have that by the end of the month, and we get there and we about, you know, right near the end of the month, I ain't even going to say nothing to you. I'm just going to look at my inbox. Click. Look, keep that send, receive note. Looking for where, where's it where, coming? Where, where's it coming? Right, right. <laughs> I'm, looking, I'm looking for your your report, ma'am, sir. So that's me in a nutshell. Through all these experiences, small business owner, uh, deacon of a church, and then you know working, you know for corporate America for some time. Being on city council, being on city council trains you a lot. You dealing with the public, having to make uh, you know working with your colleagues on votes. So now. The city council and I work well together because I was a city council person, so I respect them. I go sit with them, go talk with them. I make sure I share ideas with them so they're not left in the dark too often. And if I do make a mistake, I go on up onto it and say, ah, I forgot to tell y'all about this thing that's happening in your district. My bad. Uh, come with me to the event and you'll learn more about it. But, um, you know, I try to just be Somebody honest. Somebody has to have a, the humility in here. Oh, God, you got to have. If you're dealing with people... They they will either force the humility on you, but it's best that you have it uh, going into it so it ain't so uh, confrontational when you get put in your place. So there <laughs> is uh, a young person listening in this to this audience uh, today, to this conversation, who's in the audience, I hope, who is thinking that one day maybe they could be the mayor of Atlanta. What advice and... What experience would you want them not to miss now as they're growing up and the advice that you would tell them? Ooh. Um, first and foremost, just like Shirley Franklin told me when I told her at 16 that I wanted to be mayor, is she said, um, Andre, you can do anything you put your mind to. If you work hard enough and if you believe, you can do it. Now, that's, that's what you want anybody to tell you, that you can get there, that there is a... a a pathway that there's a possibility this could happen, that this ain't your imagination and that you're just dreaming and, or, or a senseless, you know, un, 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 impossible dream that is real. She wasn't even mayor at the time. She was working for the Andrew Young. She was working for the mayor. And I, I told her about it because she was the only person I knew that was near that stuff. And then she went on and ran for mayor. And then I said, well, look out. I know I'm mayor. Now I'm going to I'm gonna run for mayor, and so I want some, I want them to know that it's very very possible. And two, that they don't have to wait to their. I was 47 when I ran for mayor. They can run just like Maynard Jackson when he was 35 when he became mayor. So, or you could be even younger. I mean, you know, I, I, we want them to have some experience. We though. want them to okay. have some experience. Okay. This stuff you gotta, you know, you're making some critical decisions around here, um, but that they can do it, and that they should just really work hard and start you know, contributing to the community today. 
you know, you don't have to wait to become mayor. Mayor, yeah, the mayor is a big title. It gets you a lot of attention. But um, being a good community person, going to that, you know, uh, going to that Boys and Girls Club, that YMCA, working at the At Promise Center, or, you know, going around doing community projects with the United Way, with Morehouse School of Medicine, with, you know, you know anybody, just being a good person. People start putting you on teams, putting you on boards, asking you to come to events and be a part of, um, you know, various things. Next thing you know, you're sitting at some fancy table uh, at a state of the city address of the mayor or the state of the institute address of a dean of a school or a president. And lo and behold, you are already impacting communities and you, you know, Getting the mayor's title is next or somewhere near next, but enjoy the process of becoming, um, as Michelle Obama would say, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> enjoy the process of becoming. And and so for me, I, you know, I did a number of things to get to this route because it was scary to run for politics. It was scary. I didn't know a single person that, you know, that I knew that was had run and in, in my family, nothing like that. And and then when Shirley Franklin did it. I was like, okay, she's doing it, I'm gonna do it too. But didn't really know what to do. So started, just started, got on got on uh, that track and here I am now in the city council, then mayor and beyond. So that's that. And we are excited that you are our mayor. So thank you for everything you do. Thank you for having this um, extreme amount of energy. I thought I had a lot of energy. <laughs> you do. You, you got a lot of energy <laughs> and uh, you put it to good use because you think about others first and we see you, you are a hands-on mayor and we appreciate all the small things you do and the things that you do behind the scenes. So thank you. And thank you for uh, joining us on the Danforth Dialogues today. It has been a pleasure to uh, have the audience to see what it looks like to grow organically a mayor. Yeah. Someone who is of the city and who really lives his life for the city. So we're looking forward to what you're going to do in the coming years to help Atlanta remain at the forefront of the world's greatest city. So thank you very much. Thank you. In closing, we always offer our three thoughts on leadership. Our first thought today is that great leaders often come straight out of the neighborhood. Sometimes we think of great leaders as coming down from the mountaintop to show us the way, but often they're right down the street. Mayor Dickens is an excellent example. He was right around the corner from many of you all. He was born in Atlanta, went to school here, spent his life working here. And it's that experience that gives him a perspective on the community that surely helps him to understand the key priorities the city needs and to focus on them to move us forward. Second, great leaders don't mind getting their hands dirty. In fact, getting down and dirty in issues and, and concerns is really how they lead. And again, Mayor Dickens didn't create a lot of study groups and commissions to address some of the city's issues like the spike in crime. He rolled up his sleeves and has started working on the solutions that have helped us quickly to reduce our crime rates. So thank you. 
And finally, great leaders get the little things right. With all he's had to do coming into office post-COVID, I have been so impressed that he continued to pothole posse and that he understood that it's those little things when you're riding down the street and you just got your new tires <laughs> and you hit a pothole, you say, okay, to be able to avoid that makes a big difference. It's a little thing, but it's an important thing because it's one of those things that can you can get reminded of every day. So getting the little things right matters. Thank you all so much for joining us for this edition of Danforth Dialogue. We hope that you will tune in in the next couple of months as we restart this series. We wanted to wait to have Mayor Dickens to be our last guest of this season, and we thank you so much for changing your schedule and flexing to be with us. You continue to bring joy to our experience of being Atlantans. And we wish you nothing but good health and success in all that you do. Thank you very much. Back at you. Same to you. This has been a presentation of Danforth Dialogues with Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information, please contact us at danforthdialogues at msm.edu.